Hi friends, welcome to Growing as Grown Ups, where we believe each of us has the opportunity to keep growing in ways that can fundamentally improve our life effectiveness, our leadership influence, and our well-being. Through interviews, stories, and practical principles, we explore how you can accelerate your growth and unlock your potential to make the difference you want to make. And now, your hosts from The Leaders Lyceum, Dr. Sarah Musgrove and Dr. Keith Eigel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Growing as Grown Ups podcast. Keith, today is a big day. Yeah. If you recall on our very, very first episode, um, I asked you who your bucket list guests were. And today's guest was one of those people, Dr. Robert Keegan, who is um, one of our colleagues in the field, somebody that we both um, really admire and who has influenced our work greatly. But you have such a long and significant history with Bob. So why don't you introduce him to our listeners? Well, I think I'm way more aware of the history than than he is just because I have <laughs> so admired him from afar. I mean, in 1981, I talk about this in the interview, so I'll be brief, but he wrote a book that changed the course of my life. And, um, and uh, you know, it's interesting that he gives credit to Jean Piaget and Lawrence Kohlberg as sort of underpinning what he spent the next 40 years at Harvard pursuing. He wrote five books that, that he said it's about the miracle of being alive. He'll talk about that a little bit in the interview, but the, um, uh, it went from the evolving self to in over our heads to how the way we talk can change the way we work to immunity to change to an everyone culture. And there's just this incredible sort of singular thread about how we keep growing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm no Bob Keegan, but he is to me and so many people in the country, in the world, honestly, he is to so many people, there's Jean Piaget or Lawrence Kohlberg. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that is, um, it's meaningful to me, Sarah. It was funny. I, I, I mean, I don't get nervous about these podcasts. I love the conversations. You know, from seeing me that, that this was like <laughs> one where I felt, I felt like a little kid going, you know, meeting his childhood hero or something. It was Aww. the funniest, the funniest sense of, and I'm about to be 60, right? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so anyway, um, listen, this is a longer interview, right? So I feel like we ought to just jump in his, if you need his full bio, he's got a Wikipedia page there. <laughs> Plenty has been written about him, YouTube videos, but I really enjoyed, enjoyed the conversation um, that yeah. we had today and that we got to take it maybe a little bit in a different direction than some of the other things that I've heard recorded. So I hope this will be a unique contribution in some ways, just kind of yeah. because of the way these things get to live in perpetuity. Yeah, it is a beautiful conversation. As you said, it is longer than our normal episodes, episodes, but we just couldn't we couldn't cut it down. And so I would encourage people to um, either create space to listen to it or to break it into different pieces. It may even be one that people want to take notes on. And so um, let's get to the interview and we'll come back at the end and share some of our thoughts. 
So here is Keith's interview with Dr. Robert Keegan. Dr. Robert Keegan, it is like our gigantic pleasure to have you joining us today for the Growing as Grownups podcast. Our audience has heard so much about you over the years, either in their sessions with us, we refer to you a lot. You've been foundational and your work has been foundational in our thinking. So I appreciate so much your time today. Thank you, Keith. It's it's humbling to hear all that. And, and, and may I just say, maybe for the benefit of your listeners who may not know it, that your doctoral dissertation written some years ago was, uh, I think, a really important uh, piece of work and a contribution, you know, to the developmental literature. So I thank you for that. And we, we frequently make reference to it. Oh, thank you. That mean that means a lot. I, I, I have to tell you, I feel like I lucked into that as sort of a naive 30-year-old graduate student who just thought, if I just write a bunch of really big company CEOs, surely they'll say yes, and then a whole bunch of them did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it was fun. Yeah. Well, our, our audience knows some of this, but you've written, I think, five of the most important books in the Growing as Grownups, how we keep, how we keep evolving and getting better space. And the first one of those books written back in 1981 was The Evolving Self. And um, I just want to pause. Some, some members of the audience may have heard this, but there have singularly been two things in my life that I can point to as, as an event or a thing that changed the course of my life. And, and The Evolving Self was actually one of them. It, it took me um, weeks to read it. I had to read a lot of paragraphs five times, um, yeah. but it made sense of, of everybody who I admired in a different way. And so it, was, it changed the course of my graduate studies. It changed the kind of legacy that I want to hope to live out in my life. And, um, and so, so thank you for that book. There's a, just, I have an enormous uh, gratitude kind of for the fact that there are people who are still reading books and that you can reach and touch uh, so many people who you will, you know, never have a chance to actually meet directly or talk with has just been a, an enormous uh, gift to me in my life. Mm, I love that. Um, you know, the, there's a commonality, there's a thread that runs through all of these books. Um, and and the and the thread overtly almost is is this constructive developmental theory, what our audience often hears us refer to as vertical development, as opposed to just learning more things, which we generally refer to as lateral development. And they also are pretty well educated on the stages of development and understanding that roadmap for themselves and the ways that it accelerates development. But even as I've, you know, have read through all of your books and see the thread come through there there has been a bit of an evolution in your thinking the way you present things things like that but but either as you sit here today or as you reflect back on your time through those books is there what i mean what's more true to you today about developmental theory whether it's the importance of it any direction you want to take that question but i'd love to just know as what what's become more true to you over the years well, first, it's just certainly true that from, from my own perspective, I've just been writing about the same thing over and over and over. <laughs> and you could either, either say this is a reflection of a, a kind of failure of imagination, or you could say 
that it's a reflection of the fact that the phenomenon that I kind of got a hold of, fell in love with, you know, in my 20s is so rich and uh, so fascinating and has so many different uh, dimensions to it that it has continued, you know, the way that a, a good marriage can over decades and decades to just, uh, you know, itself evolve into deeper and deeper forms of, uh, of passion, basically. Um, so yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been about one thing and that is, you know, how we honor the miracle of being alive, of being an evolving creature whose destiny is to keep growing and developing, to, to transform. And um, not to be a nitpicky, but um, I, I have a, a kind of cherished a feeling for the word development, which to my mind only involves these kinds of qualitative shifts and transformations. There are lots of other important kinds of changes, uh, increasing your fund of knowledge, uh, increasing your confidence. There are many other uh, important aspects uh, of of being, uh, you know, a human being. Uh, but to me, uh, I understand the term vertical development, and I can live with it. But to me, it always sounds in my ears like shrimp scampi. I mean, it's a it to me, it's a redundancy. <laughs> I mean, that to, to me, all development, if it's really development, is vertical in the sense that it is about the further unfolding and becoming. Uh, kind of a a bigger and better version of yourself, but I think that what's what's truer for me, and the ways in which, you know, the work continues to keep giving me as much as I give to it, is the 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 ways in which um, the the most wholesome kind of um, expression of this of this work and of the theory, and I mean that even literally uh, the word wholesome in the sense of how you get your arms more fully around the whole of the project of being a human being involves kind of an equal recognition and respect for what I would call the second big endeavor of being a human being. I mean, the first big endeavor, as I say, is to honor the gift of our potential to grow and you know that a caterpillar is not meant uh, to just become a bigger and stronger caterpillar it has the potential to evolve wings and transcend its earthbound captivity uh, and that is our first endeavor uh, but the second endeavor uh, of a human being uh, which i think is a kind of less appreciated, less welcomed, less welcomed actually, and less respected, but is also incredibly important. Uh, this second endeavor is our, our effort to put it most starkly, to not die, okay? I mean, we want to live, we want to keep growing and developing, but there's also another side of us that wants to you know, make sure that we don't die. Uh, and uh, you can call it the self-protective side 
I think it's a very undervalued to refer to it as the defensive side of personality. I think that, you know, we are the most successful species on earth that can adapt to, you know, any environment and survive as long and well, you know, as we have, not just because we have the capacity to grow, but we also spend a lot of our energies, you know, looking out for danger and risk and loss. And the, the psychological translation of the endeavor to, you know, to not die is basically to not suffer what feel to us like unacceptable losses. And that whole dimension of personality is absolutely uh, itself, you know, valuable. Our, our public institutions, our workplaces are very welcoming uh, and appreciative of the of our expression of the first endeavor, the whole language of of growth and improvement and so on, is very uh, consonant with you know for example the language of business, but our second endeavor, our need to protect ourselves, our need to defend ourselves from what feel like unacceptable losses, is a tremendously important part of the human experience, and it is not as appreciated or welcomed in within the context of work, it is often consigned, if anywhere, you know, to the private quarters of, you know, an executive coach or something who's sworn to confidentiality and any uh, explorations of your anxieties or your worries, which are just a huge aspect of, of work life and life in general, you know, is consigned to some kind of marginal and, and private space. And I think that uh, you can't, it's one thing to kind of from a distance and uh, with a certain kind of uh, researchers had to kind of try to chart a descriptive trajectory of development, which is kind of where I began in my work. But once mm -hmm. you shift from a kind of researcher stance to a practitioner stance, where you actually want to know whether you can refine your own instrument to be helpful to others in this endeavor of growing and developing, you must, uh, you know, what is feels truest to me, you must also have a powerful way of engaging the fearful side of development, the, the loss uh, or imagined losses that are inherent in the whole project of leaving behind a whole way of knowing oneself and knowing one's relationship to the world, all of which has to undergo a kind of, uh, maybe it's too dramatic to say a kind of death before a rebirth to kind of evoke, you know, Christian metaphors, but some kind of dramatic shift, which is initially experienced as a loss. And I think the, what feels truest to me is the need to be holding on not just to the miracle of development, but to a bit of the agony of it and our need to be as responsive to that as we are cheerleaders for people coming into a bigger or more evolved sense of themselves. This ties so much into the, the immunity to change, our stuckness, right? And, and the fear of, of losing that status quo is in its own way a death. 
I, I think it's you, you're worried about the death of a relationship or your influence or your trajectory in your career or yes um, or the nature just, of your of your loyalties and uh, whether you'll still be uh, you know known and accepted within a community that has understood you and that each stage of development is yes I mean it is a it is a way of composing knowledge it is a way of making meaning but it is also a social contract it goes on in a social world and uh you know Erickson's original insight that we need to take a psychosocial perspective I mean I think he almost invented that term I think is is so true that you you need to hold on to both the the psycho the psychology the 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 individual uh, developmental journey, but it can never truly be well understood without simultaneously and dialectically holding on to the social the social dimension of it. That this this developing always goes on in some social context. So changing yourself, uh, growing in the ways that you make meaning, always involves having to renegotiate a kind of social contract and that can be perilous. It can feel uh, like a death. It can feel uh, enormously difficult. It depends a lot on how plural the environment and culture one is living in. I mean, it's, it's one thing to discover, you know, that you are living in a world, in a social world that's expansive enough to actually recontract with you and welcome you into the more complex self that you have become. And if in fact the contract became a kind of prison where I will, you will only be included and you will only be respected, you will only be loved or you will only be protected if you basically will remain the person that you were, then the social environment is more captivating, it's more uh, uh, constricting and that uh, kind of situation makes then the prospect of honoring the first endeavor, honoring your own growth, a much, much more uh, risky and costly feeling kind of endeavor because it can feel like in order to honor the forward motion of my own growth, I have to actually give up, abandon, or be cast out from what has been a precious uh, social context mm. Mm. there is uh you know i'm curious what you think about sort of the paradox of, of of allowing sort of our competing commitments the column three column four kinds of things that it's it's almost ironic that if we hang on to those too tightly it seems to me that we're almost guaranteed realizing that death that, that we're afraid happening but when we have the courage to honor the growth side as you're talking about it we realize the truer version of the thing we were actually trying to protect absolutely but th this is just looking at it kind of from the individual side i mean i think there's we also need to look after the social side that is what are the ways in which we all not only look after our own growth, but support the growth and development of people around us by being, you know, more sensitive to the, the perils of growth 
and development. I mean, mm. I certainly, I think one of the things in, in terms of this sort of question, like not so much how my thinking has changed, but more what are the what are the further dimensions of it that I see kind of developing over time is just a much greater respect, you know, for the agony side of development. It's very easy to be a cheerleader for development, to appreciate, you know, its liberating uh, qualities, especially when one is going through a particular transition, let's say the transition from three to four, you know, the most common gradual transformation in adult life, that it's very easy when one has gone far enough through it that you are more toward the four-ish side, if I can use that language, yeah. in the three-four transition. It's very and and the 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 sense of a new voice and the sense of one's increased personal power has started to grow. The sense of that kind of almost uh, a kind of liberation. It's uh, I mean it is it is breathtaking to behold. It is a a joyous uh, occasion to celebrate, and it is easy you know, to valorize it. But I think that um, we do our whole human community, and you can even look at this in the, you know, bigger socio kind of political context, a disservice if we are not also sensitive to and resonating to the first half of that transition when one is experiencing much more than the kind of liberation and the, the new power of the, of the fourth order but where one is basically uh, essentially feeling the loss kind of of the third order. And, and in particular, I mean, uh, another way of saying this is that one of the things we can celebrate about our, our, you know, our current period, I mean, the last, I don't know, 50 years or something like that, is that there's been a much, much greater degree of social support to non-dominant subgroups who in the who are who are disadvantaged in the dominant narrative that is basically constructed by white heterosexual uh, men uh, and that that uh, if you are in an unfavored category um, you know uh, if you are a person of color, if you are a woman, if you are gay, if you are fat, if you are any, any if you are uh, physically challenged, any category uh, which really has suffered in the dominant narrative, there has over the last, you know, I think since the 60s, let's say, we have done a much, much better job creating a community of support and ultimately uh, supporting a kind of uh, personal liberation, a kind of self-realization where one has a greater capacity to free oneself from the, the, the stage three imbibing of a narrative that puts you at a disadvantage, mm -hmm. that there's more support for reconstructing your own narrative. And that that has been, you know, I think at the social uh, and social political level, kind of the great triumph of the last 50 years that more and more people who've been disadvantaged by the dominant narrative and and frankly their 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 dominant allies you know their white allies you know as well you know have found a greater support for their development
But the work that is not done and the way in which we're currently suffering and the way in which the culture is so divided and the whole manifestation of this you know, ideological fracture you know, in the country that was you know, galvanized by Donald Trump and so on, I think needs to be respected and uh, not just uh, responded to with dismay, but to sort of recognize that for many, many people, this, this greater support for what we're calling a kind of liberation and growth can feel like a pressure and can feel, if you are firmly within the third order, it feels uh, like a kind of push that you're not ready for. And it can feel to you like the ground underneath you is giving way and you are going to be then you know, terrified. And the second job to not die becomes yeah. the preeminent job. And wow. you know, we're living kind of with those, with those forces. Um, I, I don't know if you want to get a question in here, but I, what, I'm, what's coming to mind right now are a few uh, concrete stories that bring this to life. Uh, and if you want, you can cut this little piece out of the tape. But I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of thinking it would be a, a good idea to just no, continue on this vein if it's I, okay with you. Yeah, bring up the concrete stories. And I'm curious, as the audience is listening to this conversation, practically, how do you bring the the second job, how do you shed more light on it? How, how do you, the, this dealing with the self protection what I hear you saying is give more light to the, to the second thing and not just the thing that seems like the, of course, we all want to grow. Right. All, all the advantages of that, I, I, weave that all together for us and I yeah. doubt we'll cut it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> And here are some of the uh, you know instances that kind of come to mind that I think bring to life kind of the 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 insufficiently attended to side, the earlier side of any of these transformations. But let's particularly you know base it within this very common uh, but still extraordinary uh, transformation from stage three to stage four. So here are a few quick stories, um, and and we can come back to sort of, you know, what constructive developmental theory, what kind of light it sheds on our current political situation. But this story starts in, in 2016, the day after the, the presidential election. And, you know, to my great surprise, and I think to his, Donald Trump, you know, who was elected president. And uh, I found myself, uh, as I went to my office, realizing 10 minutes into sitting down at my desk, I was not going to be able to get any work done that day. I was just so... Uh, destabilized and surprised kind of by what had happened in the country. So I, did, I just got in my car and I just started driving with no destination in mind. Um, and uh, just to kind of feel some sort of like movement, it was sort of a space for meditating basically. And, uh, and I did that for over an hour, you know, just driving down a highway. And, and I, I looked up, you know, like, well, where the hell am I, you know? And I, uh, this will let, this will let your listeners into, uh, some other aspects of my of my life, uh, but I looked up and I realized I'm in Connecticut. Uh, you know, I live in Boston. I'm in Connecticut, and I'm actually not far uh, from um, Foxwoods Casino. And it, it turns out that uh, from the age of uh, 13 or 14, uh, I've been an avid poker player, 
And uh, when the casinos only, only relatively recently uh, started to uh, open poker rooms, this became for me a, like a whole other space of recreation and pleasure. And I have all kinds of friends from all walks of life uh, who, you know, don't know me other than just, you know, I'm Bob and I'm a guy that they see at the poker table. Um, and the poker table actually is a really um, wonderful uh, American setting uh, in the U.S. in the sense that if you, if I were to ask you, can you name a kind of arena where people of very different social classes and ethnicities, um, gender, will actually play together as adults? I think it's pretty hard for you to come up, come up with one. I mean, adults will play, you know, go off and play golf or whatever they will do, but they will tend to do it, you know, within their particular uh, rather homogeneous uh, social circle. Uh, one thing about a poker table is you just have people from all walks of life, you know, sitting there together playing poker. And by the way, if you think, if you thought for a moment that because you're a Harvard professor and you're so smart, uh, uh, that you somehow have an advantage over a, a, you know, a truck driver who never took any school after high school. And when, when that guy's taking all your money at the table, it's a very <laughs> humbling and important lesson uh, with respect to what is intelligence and the very many different kinds of intelligence there is. Mm. So the, the poker table for me is, has always been you know, a really special kind of uh, sanctuary. So I saw that I was, you know, near Foxwood. And so I, you know, I, 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 for whatever reason, I thought, well, maybe this will just take my mind off everything. It'll be just a wonderful activity to just kind of stop thinking about what does it mean that the country just, you know, did what it did or that our electoral system works in such a way that a majority by several million voters can pick one person and another person ends up being the president. And uh, so I went to the poker table as a refuge. So I sit down there and I'm, you know, I'm in my familiar element and I'm beginning to think not about, you know, politics, but about the possibilities of making a flush or a straight. <laughs> and I kind of look up and I see there are two people wearing red MAGA hats at the table. Uh, and eventually, not right away, but eventually, because uh, there's a lot of talk that goes on at a poker table that has nothing to do with the poker. Eventually, somebody points to one of the guys with the MAGA hat and says, well, that was quite an election last night, wasn't it? And this leads to a conversation clearly among only those people at the table who had voted for Trump, of which there were several. And there were clearly a number of us, you know, who did not. And we said nothing. We basically just listened. And what I was most struck by in the conversation among the people who were happy with the outcome hmm. was that there was no spiking the football. There was no kind of beating one's chest in pride. What there was, was basically an expression in 2016, the day after the presidential election, an expression of relief. What they were basically saying was, I thought my country had fallen asleep and now it has awakened. Or I felt like 
I had lost my country. Uh, and, and I assume, you know, what they were talking about was you have a black man running the country, you have a much, you have an agenda that feels like it's serving people other than other than me. And the feeling was, uh, you know, exactly that, one of one of enormous relief and the expression of the kind of disenfranchisement that you know so many of them felt and i think that there's no way to get your arms around what what has been happening in the country since uh, election day in 2016 right through to what happened in on january 5th i think it is um, with the insurrection there's no way to really get your arms around that without also understanding I think the level of uh, of loss uh, and of 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 fright and pain that a very large number of people felt in this country, uh, you know, in the years leading up to uh, the 2016 election. Okay, that's just one story. Let me let me give you another one that's a little briefer, and then I'll stop with these three stories, and you can you can just kind of respond to them. Uh, this is a story of a, of a, uh, I had the privilege to, uh, work with a number of clergy from different, uh, faith communities, um, who were getting interested in the possible, um, value of constructive developmental theory for thinking about being the leader of a faith community. And, uh, Many of them, one very common theme, whether they were priests or rabbis or, or ministers, was that they were changing the nature of their prayer service uh, to have it feel like it would be more resonant to the, to the younger adults and, and kind of newer parents and newer leaders of families who they felt were, um, felt that the, that the liturgy and the service was Kind of more fitting, kind of to their parents who were now aging out, and uh, they were feeling like we need a new, a new vessel, you know, for bringing the, whether it's the gospel, you know, or or the Torah or or whatever it might be, and uh, in a sense, what they were kind of recognizing was that they had many congregants, adult, young adult, older adult congregants who themselves were moving more from stage three to stage four, and who were less inspired by a, 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 a faith community or a worship service that was essentially about just kind of taking your place within a faith that was being delivered to you by the authority, you know, of the church or of the rabbi. And that if the, if the, faith community was going to feel resonant to them, they were going to need, it, it was going to, these, these, you know, clergy were going to need to honor the self-authoring fourth order capacities of more and more people in their congregation, so that, that they would be not just faithful believers, but themselves a little bit more like theologians or themselves kind of constructing their own versions of what it meant to be Jewish or Catholic or whatever it might be. Fascinating, right? Uh, so 
we worked together on ways that they might do this. And many of them reconstructed the nature of their liturgies. They, they just as an example, they did sermons that were much more interactive instead of it being kind of the truth from on high. Uh, you know, it was a much more dialogue, dialogical, you know, kind of experience. And just like we were talking about, you know, before Keith, about how you can celebrate, there's a there, celebrate the way this is working for the many people who were, you know, in the fourth stage or moving into the fourth stage and how it led to an influx of energy, you know, within the congregation. You can't, you can't lose the fact that for some people, these changes were enormously disruptive and upsetting. And it all came to a head for me with a rabbi who uh, I'd had a scheduled meeting with to check in on how things were going in his congregation. Uh, and, you know, he initially, he said, I thought this was going to be a, a, basically a call of celebration and, and appreciation because tremendously gratifying things are happening in our synagogue and the kinds of energy and connection and deeper engagement. We had parents who wanted their kids to be Jewish but had no real interest in the synagogue themselves. They would drop their kids off at the curb, you know, for Sunday school or Saturday school and think this is a great thing for kids. It was a great thing for me when I was a kid, but basically religion isn't really for, you know, adults with independent mm -hmm. minds. And that's, that has all shifted. And so many of them now have a strong, so it, it was lots, lots to appreciate. Wow. He said, but, but, but I, this can't be the only uh, kind of uh, chord in this uh, communication because I had a very disturbing experience and I just want to share it with you, Bob. And he proceeds to tell me about a woman, you know, uh, in her, uh, I think, you know, late thirties, uh, comes to see him very distraught. And what she basically tells him, what she basically tells him, and she's basically, I have a question for you, Rabbi. And you can, he can see that just in the delivery of all this, she's, she's distraught. And what she says is, you know, I have been a faithful uh, attendee to the, the Sabbath, the Shabbat service every Friday night and Saturday morning, you know, since I was a child. And I went with my parents and we always sat in a certain spot, you know, in the synagogue. And I sat next to them and I said the prayers with them. And as they got older, I helped them, you know, walk down the aisle to find our seats. And when they passed on, we mourned them together. And I continued to go to those services. And I've never sat in that seat without essentially feeling my parents still sitting next to me. And those services have been such a meaningful experience of continuity for me, of my love and my connection, you know, to my parents, even after they've passed on. And you have completely changed this service. And it is nothing like the service I experienced with my parents or the service that I experienced long after they, they passed on. Mm. And I just have this question for you, Rabbi. And I can feel myself, just even as I'm telling you the story, the emotion that uh, was underneath what she was saying, because the question to me is so poignant. What she said was, I trust you, and I know you want to be a good leader of our, you know, of our synagogue. But the question that I have for you is, is the way that we were worshiping, 
are the prayers we said to God all these years that I heard my parents say, and that I came to say, and that my children, you know, heard me say. Were they wrong, Rabbi? Were we praying wrong all this time? That was her question. And I think if you, it's, it's that kind of feeling that I think can allow you to have a kind of compassion yeah. for the feeling of still being very anchored, you know, in the third order and experiencing that the world around you is basically pressuring you to what feels like the dishonoring and the 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 replacement i mean this is what we hear today about replacement theory and you the know death, the Jews the will not replace us in charlottesville that you know you can have nothing but contempt for neo nazis walking in hoods in charlottesville chanting that the jews will not replace us and as a jew myself you know i'm incredibly disturbed and angered by by a chant like that one but what mm -hmm. i also think about you know, when I hear even that word replace it, is the angst of that woman for whom the support to, you know, discover your own voice and move into stage four doesn't feel like this enormously welcoming new open arms to reconstruct the social contract, mm -hmm. but, you know, feels instead like a dishonoring, a replacing and a loss of something that has been so precious to her all these years. Wow. That's the second story. Do you want to hear the third one? <laughs> yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. I mean, okay. what, 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 what I keep integrating into this is, is our second job is not to die. And, and, this is not physical death, but it's 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 experiencing their de death to their way of knowing. Exactly. exactly, and that can really happen at level three or at, at the self-authored level four. You get you yes. got to get give that. You got to give, you got to allow it to die in order to. Exp I mean, this is uh, keep going, keep going. <laughs> but you're, you're exactly right. That is exactly the point that we, we can't just. If you think of development. It, developmental transition as a kind of bridge you know and you have one stage at one side of the bridge and you have the next stage at the other side of the bridge mm. we cannot just stand on the further side of the bridge and kind of you know just tell all the people that are over on the other side of the bridge it's great over here come on over here it's great you know it's <laughs> going to be wonderful when for those people they don't they're not even sure there's a bridge to you mm. they're not sure yeah. that they're just walking off a cliff you know, because what you're basically asking them to do is leave the solid ground, the solid ground of, let's say, you know, whatever that stage is, stage three. And, you know, you're, you're not, they have no proof that there's something over on this other side. And they don't even know they're going to get there. Yeah. Let me tell you the third story. This, you know, all of these just come out of my own, you know, very, this very privileged life of being able to you know, kind of interact with so many different kinds of people. I have a, I've had a wonderful uh, doctoral student, Muslim woman, uh, uh, adherent to the, you know, Islamic faith, but uh, appropriating, you know, Islam as one will any religion uh, and potentially can be appropriated 
you know, at different stages. That's why I always say that like, you know, like a, a, a stage three uh, Jew, just to take an example, may in some ways, or let's say a stage four Jew may feel in some ways they have more in common with a stage four Catholic or a stage four, uh, you know, Islam believer, yeah. and they do a fellow Jew at stage three. Because even though they're worshiping out of the same text, the notion of how they can be appropriating it personally and, and not feeling necessarily that they must be bound to some kind of orthodox rendering of that faith, uh, they feel a kind of you know, resonance with people of a completely different faith who also can appropriate that faith you know, in a more fourth order way, which is certainly at least the level of complexity with which my doctoral student was appropriating it. So I remember talking with her um, in the years after, you know, um, September 11th, 2001. And uh, that conversation I, I stuck with me because I, I didn't know what to do with it at the time. And over the years, I've kind of come back to it as itself, kind of another specimen of the, what I heard at the poker table or what I heard from the rabbi uh, in his office with the distraught, you know, uh, congregant. And in this conversation with uh, this Islamic uh, doctoral student, I, I basically asked her at some point, what is your understanding of why fundamentalist, you know, uh, uh, Islamic people would hate the West? Uh, and she gave me this look, which I've seen many times before. And in a flash of a second, I interpret it as, I know my answer, but I'm not sure I want to tell you. Mm, uh, yeah. I'm not sure yeah. you're ready to hear it, or I'm not sure how you'll respond to it. Where I can see the person kind of, they know what they want to say, but they're trying to decide whether to say it. Yeah. And that can all happen in two, three seconds, you know. Uh, uh, but I could see that she went through that, and she finally decided that she was going to tell me this. And as soon as she told me, I could well understand for many reasons why she would have had some hesitation. But what she finally said to me is, I'm going to tell you something I've never said to anybody. And she said, I think it all fundamentally comes down to sex. I was like, totally surprised. And, you know, I was like, say more. And she said, you have to understand that, you know, fundamental, radical, you know, uh, uh, Islamic, uh, you call them terrorists, th this activity, it's basically fueled, first of all, by Islamic men. There may be women that get brought into the fold and who, you know, will be a party to these violent activities, but it, it's all being led by men. And you have to understand the psyche of the Islamic man. And you have to understand how fundamental to the world order and personal identity of an Islamic man is the absolutely unquestioned norm and conviction that a woman's sexuality and her choices about how she's going to be, you know, a sexual person are completely in the control of men and of the, of the Islamic culture. And that has always been how it has been. 
And that is how an Islamic man understands his own manhood. And the absolutely single most destabilizing dimension of the Western message, which we are no longer able to protect ourselves from, which is spreading throughout the world, a message you would probably call, or I even, she said, would call a message of freedom and a message of greater you know, personal liberty. The way that message is being interpreted by, by many Islamic men is a complete and utter destabilization of their own identities, their own notion of what it means to be the head of a family. And the notion that a woman should have her own freedom to determine and make decisions about her sexuality, about who you know she is sexually intimate with, you have no idea in the West how enormously triggering that kind of uh, you know, promulgation, promulgating of that kind of freedom might be. And she said, I've never said this to anybody. I don't know that any Islamic person would agree with me. And just for the benefit of your listeners, I want to say I'm, I'm telling you this story not to necessarily even confirm the truth of what she's saying. I mean, she could be like totally wrong, but I think what she's saying is incredibly interesting. And to whatever extent it might be true, even for some people, it does give you a window into the, you know, the second job of making sure you don't die, that that's, that's what the, you are looking at. That's what that's you're looking or, at. That's life or death. Exactly. That's life or death. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. Now, just okay, take so, these three stories. Just sit with yeah. these three stories for a second. Yeah. You know, the, the Trump poker players, the faithful parishioner whose whole service has been changed, um, the, the Islamic man who, whose whole identity and sense of personal power and manhood and so on is now being at risk. You get, begin to, you know, if you want to think about the amygdala, you know, if you want to think about the part of the brain that is scanning you know, for threat and danger. Uh, and think now about the, the, the phenomenon of something like mass triggering. Think about, you know, a whole community, whether it's, you know, millions of people in this country uh, who will not, you know, look at science or, you know, because it has been politicized and, be, and been made into a kind of, you know, antichrist or whatever it might be, or fundamentalist Islamic men. And you're, you're looking now, not at just a, a given individual, you know, being triggered, but a, a whole community of being triggered where the threat level has gone, you know, to the brightest red, the sirens are at their absolute loudest. And you have to have kind of an appreciation for that. And of course, you know, your next question, you've already suggested it, is going to be okay. What can we do about that? And I have right. to just it, can admit to you, you know, I feel much less eloquent and clear, you know, about that. But I'm 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 quite clear that finding some way to better appreciate the the loss that people are experiencing from the the push for them to develop faster than they're ready to, you know, is absolutely kind of like our present need. 
you know, in this country and kind of on the planet. Wow. Wow. One of the things that I'm hearing you say, and this is, I, I you know, I feel like I, I stay in this space 24-7, 365 for a couple of decades now. <laughs> but I haven't thought until these three stories until this conversation about what it means to actually embrace, give voice to the, the fear associated with that affiliation becoming destabilized in some way. What we need is a, a much more, uh, you know, a humane and positive and compassionate way of responding to that fear rather than basically leveraging it and using it to galvanize a community, which is then also providing you the second thing that you're so in need of, the feeling that I am part of a group of, you know, fellow believers, and I have found, you know, my people. That is also, you know, a desperate hunger, and we need to find ways to provide community for people at any developmental stage that isn't so shot through with this kind of you know, uh, triggered uh, yeah. threat and reaction to, you know, a, an imagined loss. Yeah. For, and, and so for those of us that are trying to facilitate growth in people, um, don't be silly is not a very helpful response to those fears. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, I, I love that in the poker table story, tell me more right? Tell me yeah. more. I want yeah. to hear more. And I, and I do feel like it's one of the things that we've challenged people to do is find people that see things, have different affiliations than you do, see things differently than you do, and kind of move into the tell me more space, which I think maybe also, I mean, I'd love to hear what you think about, I, I, I think that helps me address my own fear in some way as well, even as I may be trying to make space for their fear to have voice yeah and and to and to have compassion and understanding and not try and stuff it under a rug and tell them that's dumb exactly wow so powerful so bob tell me in your world right now what are you most excited about where's your energy yeah i'm happy happy to do that and it's not it is not unrelated to these kind of high concept analyses of you know the difficulties that we find ourselves in uh not unrelated to that at all but it is it is highly practical the the thing that most has my attention in terms of how i spend my you know my working hours is really an effort the, and most of the of the organizations and most of them are companies and businesses of different sizes <clears throat> they wouldn't necessarily think of the work in these terms, but the way I would describe it is the effort to create new kinds of communities within workspaces that enable people uh, to be more human with each other and to support each other's growth and development, where these, these communities will inevitably include people who are at very different stages in their development and who across the whole political spectrum. Uh, one of the organizations we've been working in for a number of years, for example, is a healthcare company where you have actual 
numbers of people working in those companies who, for example, don't want to take the vaccine and they have to find some way of holding on to their community and still honoring kind of the differing beliefs uh, of their of their colleagues. Now, the ways that this work essentially gets taken up by, you know, enlightened leaders is not in a totally altruistic spirit that they want to just, you know, help their people develop. They recognize that their organizations and their companies are only going to go as far as their people will take them. And they recognize that the aspirations that they have, the missions that they want to deliver on in their companies actually are going to require uh, greater degrees of, of fourth order uh, meaning making in the organization. And that work has led us into, for example, a whole new frontier on the on the um, on the assessment front, we've developed a very robust population-wide measure of the distributions of of mental complexity within a population. It doesn't take more than fifteen or twenty minutes for each person to kind of uh, respond to a set of questions, which then get you know fed into an analytic process. It doesn't lead to giving any individual a score and telling somebody you're at this stage. It's not an individual measure at all. So it's completely, in that respect, anonymous. But what it does for the leadership, what it does for the community as a whole, is show them a picture of what are the distributions of the different stages within this population. And it can be sliced and diced to compare you know, the people in North America from the people in Europe or the more senior people or whatever. And what, these, what the measure almost always demonstrates and shows is just what you would expect, that the the, the modal stage is not uh, the, the fourth stage, that you have right. a very, very large number of people who are at the third stage or somewhere, maybe even early in the transition from the third to the fourth. So the measure at one level, first of all, kind of shows you that um, you need more, to put it simply, you need more fourth order capacity in this organization, which just increases the desire to change the culture in such a way that we can be supporting more people's development. And we can a year later give everybody the same measure and see whether or not you know, the population as a whole is actually growing. We've also coming out of the work we've done on the DDO, the Deliberately Developmental Organization, created another robust measure, which measures how developmental is your culture. How strong is it in these three dimensions we talk about in the book, home, edge, and groove, how much is it psychologically supportive? How much is it usefully challenging? And how robust a set of, of regular practices and ways that you spend time together are on behalf of development. And each of those three categories has a number of subcategories. And those measures will always show that there's some ways in which without even realizing it or recognizing it, you've done a great job making the culture more developmental. And it also shows you the optimal areas that need to be strengthened. And every question on that measure asks things like, you know, the question might be like, you know, what's the climate for making mistakes, you know, in this culture? And you answer every one of these questions twice. You say, what is, the, what is your honest assessment of how things are like on a one to five scale now? And the second question is, what would you like it to be in your work setting? Yeah. Those results always show a gap between how developmental the culture is and how developmental people want it to be. 
And that has a wonderful shifting effect. It's no, it's not some outsider, you know, some, uh, you know, brainy professor or something coming in and saying, you know, you need to have your culture be more developmental. Or people say, the leaders say, how do I get my people on board with our having a more developmental culture? I say, that's the wrong question. Your people are already on board. Look at the results of this measure. It isn't yeah. me saying you need to be more developmental. Your own people are saying they want the culture essentially to be more developmental. Now you have the opportunity in your leadership to help close that gap. So these two measures have been very useful. And then what we've been doing in these, in these small groups at scale using you know, these kinds of uh, technologies uh, so people have it on their computer screens and their iPhones and so on is to scaffold the meeting of small groups where people learn to bring their humanity, not just their pedigree, you know, to the group. And where people are working on their day-to-day -day work challenges, but they're working on them in the context of their own improvement project. So I know I need to be a better listener or a better delegator or be better with conflict or whatever the thing might be. And I have an immunity to change map I can put on the screen and we can all see my limiting assumptions in the fourth column and so on. So when we work on the work problems and challenges, we're not just trying to fix them or give advice to each other. We're also trying to use the work challenges to help me with my own, my own assumptions, my own developmental project as to how I you know, be better as a delegator or with conflict. And the reason I'm explaining all this and the reason I think it does connect with you know, the earlier conversation we had is that I do think people hunger for community even more so in the COVID era where we have less and less, you know, time actually together. And to be able to create spaces where people with different beliefs and from different positions can come together, connect first of all around their, around their vulnerabilities, around their worries is a much more salutary way of creating a holding environment or a community than one that plays on people's fears and basically leverages their fears into uh, you know, a, a reactionary political movement. Mm, so good. I know people can get the book, Everyone Culture, but what's the best way for people to find out more about what you guys are doing for organizations and how can they contact you, website, whatever, what makes the most sense on that? And we'll also include whatever you give me in the show notes as well. Thanks. Okay, I'll give you three things. First of all, we, we have kind of these two sister organizations uh, that uh, one, more of a home base for immunity to change work, the other uh, uh, more of a home base for uh, the deliberately developmental organization, two very collaborating organizations, uh, and they each have uh, their own websites. One is Minds at Work, like your mind, mindsatwork.com, uh, which is one, and the other is thedevelopmentaledge.com. So those two websites will, will bring you into a world of resources and opportunities. But I would also say to folks listening that if you just want to be in touch uh, personally, I'm happy to just you know give you my email address and have you contact me directly and talk about how we could be of help to you. And that email address is a simple one. It's just Robert underscore K-E-G-A-N, one E, K-E-G-A-N, uh, at harvard.com. 
dot uh, edu. Sorry, dot edu. Dot edu. We'll make yes, sure that that's Harvard right. Harvard would be for me to think of them. Though they were, Harvard is the first corporation in America. Uh, but okay, it's edu. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bob, you've been so generous with your time. For our audience, for me, thank you so much. What an engaging, enlightening, thought-provoking, scary at times conversation. Yeah. And I can't, I can't tell you enough how much this means to us. A pleasure, Keith. Very happy to, to reconnect with you and all the best to you and to, and to all your listeners. Thank you, Bob. We'll talk soon. Okay. Sarah, um, I hope that was as fun for our listeners as it was for me. And um, they just got to hear an awful lot of my voice. I want you to just jump in. What, what, what struck you? What really jumped out at you? as you listen through the interview with Dr. Keegan. Oh my gosh, it was fun for me. So hopefully your, our listeners loved it as well. But I mean, there were so many good things he talked about. And the thing that has just stuck with me since I first listened to it is really the powerful story or the powerful idea of really honoring this second endeavor of life as he talked about it, this recognizing both the miracle and the joy of development and transforming and becoming a new and better version of yourself. And, and that's what we, that's what we think about a lot. We think about what we call the bigger me kind of growing into this, um, this version of ourselves that we aspire to. And we definitely pay attention to the second endeavor in our, in our, what we call our smaller me values or these fears that we hold but just his challenge that we really need to recognize and appreciate and respect mm. the fears that people have, especially early on in their development. Like it never really struck me this clearly that when somebody's kind of starting out, moving into a new um, stage of their development, how scary that really is, right? Because we see it as exciting for them that they're getting to grow and break free of some of the things that are holding them in place, but really saying when he talked about kind of this bridge from, from where I am to where I want to go, that I don't even know that there is solid footing ahead. And just the challenge to me and to us as we walk with people on that journey to really sit with them. And, and it goes back to so many things we've talked about already in terms of really listening to people well, giving them space to to process what they're thinking through the self on the shelf listening strategy that we've used. We have that tool on our website for people who want to go back and um, learn more about how to do that. But just again, that the empathy that comes with that um, really struck me. And with that, the thing I loved was the emphasis he put on this idea of community and how we need to create communities even within our workplaces where people get to show up, I think the way he said it was with their humanity and not just their pedigree. And, and we try to do that in our programs through cross mentoring groups and encouraging people to find developmental relationships. But I think about all the people that I've had the privilege of coaching and, and I am the place where they get to come bring their humanity because they don't feel like they get to show that side of them at work because they have to be this more put together, I'm not afraid person. And so just for me personally, sitting with the weight of that, the honor of that to say, we get to hold this really 
delicate space in people's lives as they they take these steps to try to become better versions of themselves, not knowing if that better version really exists on the other side. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Um, you know, there is a, uh, there's obviously a hierarchical nature to what we've been basing our curriculum on and, and, and saying that being at certain places at the journey is, is, is better and more effective at certain ages. There's beauty to every stage at, at, at appropriate times of development, but so many people get stuck. And I feel like the, the one thing that he emphasized to your point is that when we can honor the, the, the self-protective job that we have, the job that I think he said is to not die. <laughs> um, yeah. But 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 then, as we talked about a little bit in the interview, all of the little deaths that we suffer—not the big physical death, but all the all the little deaths of letting go of something that we held to be true—it um, really, for me, created a, a different level. I feel like I've always been compassionate for people who are struggling to get out of one place they know they need to, but there's too much fear around it. Um, it creates a different level of compassion and understanding that, that I hope our audience, as they think about people around them who they wish were maybe further along the journey in, in some way, um, maybe it gives them a different level of compassion and understanding. And it really is just such a beautiful expression of that at this stage in his career, in his life, in his thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. I think just one thing he said that pushed that further that has also struck me is we've talked a lot about how the challenges that are happening in this world, like not just in my own personal life, but I mean, even just the last year, year and a half have, has brought so many social challenges to, to just our country, our world, whether it's, um, racial issues, political issues, health issues, all these different things that this idea of mass triggering or mass challenges that are pushing people to develop faster than they're ready and how much fear that's triggering with people. And that just, again, created a greater empathy for me with all the stuff that I see going on in the world and thinking, what, <laughs> why is our world so broken? Why are people acting in these ways? And it's like, there, there are unavoidable challenges coming our way as a, as a society that people that are forcing people to grow in ways that they weren't ready for. And some people probably who were kind of primed for that growth have um, accelerated through these challenges. And those that were not prepared for them that are maybe earlier in a developmental transition or kind of stuck on a space it's created so much fear, which then brings you brings to the surface behaviors and things that are way more self-protective than would have been exhibited in a in a more peaceful time. So again, just a new level of of a new lens for which to view what's happening in our world, I think was a, a really special gift that he gave in his yeah. talk. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. I mean, it's beautifully said. 
and um, and and so true. Uh, I love that he used these three stories, especially the personal poker story, <laughs> and 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 uh, not not only his love for the game, but it being one place where people from all walks of life can show up and and maybe even learn from each other. Yeah. understand each other in a new way and i think there's a there's a whole lesson that we could go off on uh, just on who's in your world that you're getting to understand in a non-threatening non-judgmental way what they're what they're about and um and 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 maybe understanding yourself better through understanding them so again this was a long episode I feel like you and I could sit here and talk about things in this episode for the next uh, 30 minutes or so, um, but we'll let this unfold. I'm sure we'll be referring back to this episode in future episodes. So um, thanks so much for this time and this kind of chance to sort of debrief and, and process what we were thinking about it. All right, everyone, we will see you in two weeks for our next episode in this series on vertical development and how we keep growing as grownups. And until then, be well. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Growing as Grownups. Take a second and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and tell your friends. You'll find all of the goods related to this episode, including the transcript, videos, links, and other ways we can help you keep growing as a grown-up on our website, growinggrownups.com. Growth isn't easy, but it's completely within your reach. Until next time, journey well, friends.